Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Preparing the Way. Have you ever wondered, I mean, why was it necessary for someone to prepare the way for Jesus? I mean, why can't Jesus begin to appear and, you know, begin his own ministry and he healed the sick and preaches the kingdom and, and so forth? Why is it necessary for someone to go in advance of him? I suppose that Jesus could have begun preaching and, and once it became known what he was up to, I have no doubt he would have attracted a large crowd. Kind of, you know, if you think of it in modern terms, you know, someone who's very gifted begins a new church and it just immediately begins to grow and become large. Or if you will, someone begins, you know, a business, has a great product, establishes his own customer base and then grows it to become a major company. We all like stories like that. Why isn't Jesus like that? But in his wisdom, that's how the Father would present the Son to the world. Up until now, as Luke has been telling us, the Father has been preparing the Son for this moment. Of course, we know that his divine nature didn't need preparation, but his human nature did. And we also know that many are the examples of people who are given leadership too quickly, either resulting in you know, unmanageable pride, lack of training, a host of other problems. The Father was concerned that Jesus be perfectly trained before he would begin his public ministry. But it was also true that Israel as a nation needed to be trained or prepared for the coming of the Messiah. I mean, after all, it was very important when Jesus began his public ministry that the nation of Israel did not view him as simply another prophet, but they would understand that he was the long-expected Messiah. And so God appointed a man to go before him. And that man's name was John. And it's with the coming of John that the time was at hand for the appearing of the Savior of the world. Now, we've already mentioned that Luke, the man who writes these events, is writing as a well-researched historian, writing to give assurance that these things actually happened. And since Luke is writing for a primarily Gentile audience, he wants to frame these events in real history. So let me give an example. Suppose you have two books on the desk in front of you. One begins... Once upon a time, a great many nations of the world went to war. It was a devastating war that affected the entire earth. Sounds interesting. But now you have a second book, and this one begins as follows. On July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, dragging a great many nations of the world to war. Ah, you see, the first book might be a true story, but it might not could be a fable, a morality tale. The second one, no doubt, that's history. And so when Luke tells the account of the public ministry of Jesus, let's hear how he starts. Luke 3, 1-2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. <laughs> now, as we know, the ancients didn't give dates the way we do today. Instead, they dated matters according to the great rulers who lived. And so as a meticulous historian who's not telling a myth or a legend, but's recording real history, the first thing Luke does is give a date. 
Luke begins. The event I'm telling you about occurred in exactly the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, let me say that I'm aware that among some scholars, there is a debate about this date, but I think the evidence is very strong that the year he's referring to is A.D. 29. Tiberius succeeded the very well-known emperor Augustus, the man who was emperor, as Luke has already told us, when Jesus was born. Tiberius reigned from the years A.D. 14 to the year A.D. 37, and so hence the 15th year of his reign, that's 29. Luke the historian has identified the time period for us. And then Luke gives us five historical characters that factor into the story. And why does he do that? Well, the answer is that Luke wants so much more than to give us dates. He wants to give us the historical context of what happens. He, he wants us to know that the events in question didn't just happen in a land far away. Instead, it happened in a political and cultural context. So let's look at the people that Luke mentions. The second person is Pontius Pilate, who was at that time the governor of Judea. Now, all Bible readers recognize that name. He was still the governor when Jesus was crucified. And it happened in this way. When Herod the Great died, that is the Herod who butchered the boys in Bethlehem, when he died, his son Archelaus reigned after him. But that man was so cruel and so despised that chaos was sure to ensue. And so the Romans stepped in and they deposed him and they placed a Roman governor in his place and reorganized the jurisdiction of that region. And we know that Pilate was appointed Roman governor of the jurisdiction of Judea in the years A.D. 26 to 36. And so he was there from the entire time of Jesus' ministry. Now, some explanation is required. Pilate would not have been stationed in Jerusalem, but in the city of Caesarea. It's a Roman military city right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, where they could easily transfer goods and troops and anything else they needed. The harbor at Caesarea was one of the most sophisticated harbors in the world at that time, so it was a very strategic military base of operations for occupying the promised land. Whenever Pilate, the governor of Judea, would go to Jerusalem, he would stay in the Antonio Fortress. That's history. Good. We have the Roman Caesar. We have the Roman governor in the land of Israel. Who else have we got? Well, the third person Luke mentions is Herod who's the tetrarch, he says, of Galilee. Now, we know that when Jesus began his public ministry, the majority of it was done not in Judea, but in the north in Galilee. And this Herod was also known as Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. He was named tetrarch or ruler of Galilee by the Roman authority. He became tetrarch when he was 17 years of age, and he ruled from the years 4 BC, that's the year that Herod the Great died, which is also the year of Jesus' birth, until A.D. 39, after Jesus had died and was raised and ascended into heaven. And so all through the ministry of Jesus, this man was the constant figure in the background. Well, who was he? Well, he was the man who would eventually imprison and behead John the Baptist. Jesus once called him a fox, which meant that Jesus knew he was a schemer, someone who was always manipulating to get just what he wanted. Almost every reference to Herod in the Bible is a reference to this man, and it's negative. The fourth person that Luke mentions is Philip the Tetrarch. He's also a son of Herod the Great. Notice the precision of Luke by designating the exact areas where Philip reigns. Luke is always a historian. 
Finally, fifth and sixth, Luke mentions the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas, the first one that Luke mentions, was appointed high priest by the Roman governor Quirinius in the year AD 6. He was deposed in AD 15, and so we might wonder why Luke mentions him at all. I mean, after all, he's not high priest anymore when John the Baptist begins his ministry. But in fact, his son-in-law Caiaphas is high priest, and it's clear that Annas never stopped exercising his authority through his son-in-law. And so Luke has it exactly right. In actual fact, you know, according to a formal authority, there's only one high priest, that's Caiaphas. But the situation on the ground is really different. Annas was still acting like high priest, and so there were really, in fact, two high priests at the same time. So it's remarkable how accurate Luke is in every detail. When he tells his account, it's not in a land far away, but it's in a very specific place at a historical date in history in the context of a complex and dangerous political landscape. At that time, AD 29, all these factors were at play. And it was then that John, the son of Zechariah, began to preach. And Luke has already told us that John was born in a supernatural fashion. His mom was well past the age of childbearing when she gave birth to him. And John's birth signals that the age of the Messiah was upon us. So that was 30 years before the events that Luke is now describing. But now in the year 29, when the world of the Roman Empire and in Israel was alive with political power struggles and great schemes, the word of God came to a man named John. And I take that to mean that a divine message came directly to him. God spoke to him directly while he was in the wilderness of Judea. It's a hot and it's an arid and it's a desert place, and all manner of theories have abounded as to where exactly John was. You know, some in recent days have thought that John may have, for a time, been a part of the Essene community. That was a, you know, a group of monks who lived in the region of the Dead Sea. Well, Luke mentions none of that, but does give us the impression that John lived a life of solitude and discipline, a kind of a monk figure in the desert. And he would have been given to reading and to praying. And God was speaking to him. And not only speaking to him, but God was giving John a message as to what he was to preach. And in the 15th year of Tiberius, the world was about to change. Want to receive all the latest from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, directly to your inbox? Want to be the first to know of all the upcoming ministry events and initiatives? Then be sure to subscribe to our email list to receive our daily audio mail and monthly update emails. Every weekday, you'll receive an email containing links to all the newest audio messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt. And each month, you'll receive the ministry update email containing exclusive first look insights, and special ministry features. To subscribe, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the homepage, you'll find the sign-up form. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And if you're able, please consider a gift to help ensure all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, all of its resources, continue to be made available across this country.
It is clear that Israel needed to prepare for the Messiah, but that Israel wasn't ready for the Messiah. God would have met John in the wilderness and given him both the message he was to preach and the means he was to use to preach it. His ministry was to transform the nation. Now, while it is true that there was a vibrant expectation in Israel at that time that the Messiah would come, it's also true that the priesthood as well as the religious leadership of the land was corrupt beyond measure. And when the leaders are corrupt, many of the people are corrupt as well. And so after having seen a revelation from God, John begins his ministry, and I'm reading Luke 3, 3 to 6. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So the area where John was preaching was around the region of the Jordan. Now that could mean, you know, that he went from the Sea of Galilee in the north, where the Sea of Galilee flows out into the Jordan, all the way to the Dead Sea. And it's possible that John's ministry ranged that far. But we also know that when John engaged in the ministry of baptism, it's best to understand Luke's words to mean that John was preaching on both sides of the Jordan. When John writes about this, he says in John chapter 1, verse 28, that it was at Bethany across from the Jordan, that is, in the Jordan Valley just north of the Dead Sea. And Matthew 3, verse 13 says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, which indicates that the Jordan where John was baptizing was definitely south of Galilee. And so since we know that the city of Jerusalem was essentially emptying out in order to hear John, we know that John was baptizing somewhere that was close enough for the people of Jerusalem to get to. Bethany was about 65 kilometers from Jerusalem. And what's John saying? Well, Luke tells us that he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. To repent is to change one's mind. John's calling for a change of attitude towards God. Turn from your thinking about how you relate to God. Express remorse that your actions have been in violation to the law of God. Recognize that God doesn't approve of your attitudes, nor the way you're living your lives. Understand that you've offended a holy and righteous God. You better turn from your complacency about how you live in relationship to God and gain a deep sense of remorse for the sins you've committed against him. Turn from the way in which you're thinking and living. That's essentially John's message. Now, at this point, Luke has not yet told us the particulars of what they were to repent of. Later on, he will describe that in some detail. But John was doing more than preaching on the need to repent. He was, says Luke, preaching a baptism of repentance. And to baptize literally means to dip or to immerse. You know, in the law of God, even utensils were to be dipped into water in order to be ceremonially cleansed. And furthermore, we know that from the time of Jesus, many Jews practiced a symbolic bath in which they dipped themselves in water was called a mikvah, in order to cleanse themselves from any ceremonial defilement before they would enter the temple. But we also know that when the Jews would win a convert from the Gentiles, they would demand the convert would be baptized, immersed, to cleanse that person from Gentile defilement. And so the idea of baptism already was there at the time of John. 
People practiced various forms of it in order to symbolize ritual purity. But John introduces a new element. He's not talking about ritual cleansing. He's talking about moral cleansing. He says there's a deep inner attitude that needs to be changed. And then Luke adds what Matthew also adds. He quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, which predicts that the Lord himself was coming to bring salvation to his people. And the context of Isaiah's prophecy, that's fascinating. Isaiah 40 is that chapter in the book of Isaiah that signals the major transition in the book. Isaiah has been denouncing the sins of Israel, and he's been prophesying that God would punish Israel. He would use the Babylonians, and Israel would be driven from her land. But then comes chapter 40, which begins by God speaking to the prophet Isaiah with the words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. That is, Isaiah says, there is a day coming when God will find a way to pardon wicked Israel, remove her sins, comfort her after her days of hardship. When will that happen? Well, Isaiah doesn't give dates, but he does say that when it happens, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now, that can only mean that these things will happen when the Messiah comes. In those days, says Isaiah, a voice is going to cry out, and that's the portion that Luke quotes. There's a voice crying in the wilderness. Now becomes clear why God had John stay in the wilderness all alone. John was being called upon, says Luke, to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. John was the fulfillment of the only hope for God's people. It would come when the Messiah would appear. And the prophecy that Luke quotes mentions that pathways need to be made straight. Valleys need to be filled up. Mountains need to be leveled. See, that's language filled with symbolism. John was going to clear the way for the coming of the Messiah by taking away everything that was God dishonoring, that was crooked, that was out of line with God's law and the will of God in their lives. Now, just a side note, I've already said that Matthew in his gospel, when describing the ministry of John the Baptist, quotes this very same verse. Indeed, so does Mark, you know, in the very first three verses of his book. And when John reports on the same thing, he says that John himself at one point in time quoted this very passage, and that's found in John chapter 1, verse 23. But in Luke's account, the last lines of this quotation that ends with the salvation of God, that part of the quotation is found only in Luke. Luke has extended the quotation from Isaiah. And why is that? Well, I think the answer is that Luke's longer quotation, Luke is including the words, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That is, Luke wants Gentiles to understand why they should be interested in this story. It's not just a Jewish story, he says. It's about the entire world, and it's about you as well. So let's continue to read Luke 3, 7 to 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, that does sound anything but comforting. But John, while he's preaching, was aware that with any movement that attracts a great many people, 
There are bound to be people in the crowd that are there for the wrong reasons. Now, Matthew tells us that the particular people that John was addressing, those were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the corrupt religious leadership in Israel. John knew that these people were there for ulterior reasons. Some of them were there to look for ways to discredit John. I mean, after all, John was drawing far more crowds than they ever could, and they were envious. And others resented the idea that if they weren't there, the crowds would think they cared nothing for repentance, and therefore they were unholy people. And so they had to be there in order to be seen. However, John, like any prophet who is truly a prophet of God, he hates hypocrisy. And so John comes out swinging, as we say. And he was not going to put up with the likes of these people. He calls them broods of vipers, regardless of how you understand that. That's not a compliment. Vipers are poisonous killers. And then John adds three items that got everyone's attention. Who warned you to flee the wrath of God, which is surely going to come? See, that set matters in context. Wrath is about to come. And then he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, you can't say that you've changed your mind on anything unless your actions actually follow your attitude. And the third thing he says is don't think that being a Jew or a child of Abraham will safeguard you in the day of wrath. Look, says John, you think being a Jew is special? I got news for you. God can make Jews out of rocks. Indeed, there's an ax laid at the root of the tree of Israel, ready to chop down every hypocritical Jew whether he's a child of Abraham or not, if you don't turn from your sins, your Judaism won't protect you. John is preparing all of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And you can't welcome a Messiah while you live in sin. I tend to think we need to hear John in our day as well. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, so there's no confusion, is it true to say that salvation requires absolute repentance. Yes, it does. We must turn from our wicked ways, and we must turn to him that he might save us from our wickedness. So if we were to say, save me, but I want to remain in wickedness, well, there's really no reason to come to him and ask him to save us, is there? Um, The reality is that we recognize our wickedness has earned us you know, damnation. And so we were saying, save me from that which creates dissonance between God and myself. Yes, we must repent. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You've heard it said before that God is always with us, but sometimes it can be difficult to grasp what we know to be true. If that has ever been your experience, then you'll want to check out Dr. John's newest book called In All Things, God's Providence. Throughout its 190 pages, Dr. John unravels the mystery behind the doctrine of God's providence in a way we can all understand and appreciate. This book illustrates how God directs and upholds all aspects of our lives. So for this month only, Back to the Bible Canada is offering In All Things for a special feature price of only $5, or you can download the digital copy for free at backtothebible.ca. Act now because next month, the book will be at its regular price of $17.99 or $3.99 per download. 
You can order your copy at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.